Well, thanks again for uh, being with us today. And if we haven't met, my name is Corey. I'm lead pastor here at GFC. It's been a lot of fun kind of to be in a season of celebration uh, here at GFC. Last week, we celebrated family dedications, and this week we get to celebrate baptism, and then the next week we celebrate tailgate. So it's just a lot of fun, uh, three weeks in a row. So if you made it to one or two or three, we hope that you'll join us again uh, next week. We are in a sermon series we just kicked off last week. It was the first one called Soundtracks. And I want you guys to know that this is not an idea. This is an idea that I grabbed from another book of the same name. So there's a man named John A. Cuff. He's an author. He's a Christian, but the book he wrote was not a Christian book. It was just about thought process and what goes on. And I read that book last year. I thought, as I processed some of the verses we're going to talk about today, that this was something that was not only brought out of him in a thought process, but it's scriptural. It's something that we can think about, that we can process. And so the tagline says, the truth that we believe, or you believe, will produce the fruit you see. And so we're going to talk a little bit about where we're at in the book of Luke, and then we're going to tie this into uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And this is kind of our summer series. So if you missed last week, you're welcome to go back and watch us on YouTube, or you can podcast, wherever you can podcast, you can find that as well. And we hope you'll track with us throughout the summer. But here's where we've been. This is kind of the idea behind the conversation we've been having. The soundtrack plays a huge role in how we understand the story. And this is true when you're watching a movie or you're watching a TV show or you're playing a video game sometimes. The music that surrounds the scene will help you feel a certain way or understand what's going on in the story. My wife and I were watching a show uh, this week. And one of the characters in the show, she's, she's a high-ranking executive in her industry. And many times when she goes into meetings or she finds herself with other high-ranking people in her industry, she's the only woman. And she talked about in the show how when she gets ready to go into that room where she knows she's going to be the only woman, she kind of psychs herself up. And she looks in the mirror and she imagines the little girl that she was, and she thinks to herself, how would I want this? How would I want to be an example to that little girl that I was? How would I want to engage this room and really be someone that is getting my ideas out there and is leading well? And, and this whole scene, as she's doing this, there was a mirror in front of her, and that's all you can see. There was no talking at all. It was just her and a mirror. But the music behind it did everything. And I thought to myself as I was watching it, I wonder if they played the music while she was acting. Because I think if I was doing a scene like that and played the music they played, it actually would have helped me. Because it would have helped me move into that space and be excited about that moment. And so we know that when the soundtrack kicks in, we understand certain things about what we're watching and how we're supposed to understand what we're seeing on the screen. I think the same thing is true of what we think and the truth that we believe in our hearts. And, and, and what we're going to read here in a minute, Luke chapter 6, is that Jesus, I think, says that the truth we keep in our hearts and minds is going to come out. And so it's up to us to kind of understand and evaluate what truths we're keeping. And so in Luke 6, starting in verse 43, and we'll read 44 through 45 well, it says, as well, it says this, A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. Verse 45, it says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. And I, I helped us understand, I don't do this a lot, we don't pull a lot of Greek into this, but I, when I was studying for this, I looked up what that word was, that word treasure. What does that actually mean? And when we look at it in the Greek, I'll, we'll put it up here on the screen for you, in the Greek, the way you say that is, they sorrows 
where it's also where we get the word thesaurus. So what Jesus is saying is the treasure of words that we keep in our heart, the truth we believe in our hearts and minds, will overflow. And if we keep falsehoods, we keep lies in our heart, he says that we will be an evil person. Or if we keep actual truth and we, we keep what we know God says about us, we will fulfill that. We'll do those things in our lives that will overflow from the truth we believe. And so obviously when Jesus starts talking about fruit and what grows out of what, you if you've been in church a while, maybe your brain goes to Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says this in verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Verse 17. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of the sinful nature's desires. Those two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Verse 18. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. And so Paul says, this is the tension, right? This is the battle that goes on all the time. Is There's the fleshly desires, the desire that we would think we want, the path that we want to go down, or we can allow the Holy Spirit to move in us and produce that fruit. And I believe what, what, what Jesus is saying is when we, when we put the truth in us and we dwell on that, and that's where we live out of, that's the way that we make those decisions. There are times in life where we, were, we will find ourselves making automatic decisions based on circumstances. Like if you smell something that you really love, you're going to get hungry, right? Or you see someone you really love, you're going to go hug them. It's just an automatic response. Why? Because you've been trained and you've got in your head, when I see that person, they love me, I want to go hug them and be them. When you smell that smell, your body goes, I know what's going to happen next. I'm really excited about that, right? We have this automatic response. And the same thing is true when we think about the truth that we store in our hearts and minds. It's going to influence what we live out, what we say, what we do, and the habits we create. And so then in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23, he lays out all the fruit of the Spirit. It says that the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. And so over the course of the summer, we're going to take one of these things every week, and we're just going to build on it and see what does it take, what kind of truth do we have to store in our hearts and minds in order for that fruit to come out. And I don't think it's a mistake that or it was, it was uh, by accident that Paul put love first. And I think what we're going to realize today is that love can be one of the most difficult things on this list. And so when we really lean into it, what does it mean to actually look like Jesus in this way? So here's how we're going to frame this. Every week, uh, the plan is to give you a why. Last week, we talked about Genesis 3, and we talked about how Satan comes along and talks to Eve and leads her into a lie, and she decides to believe something that's not true, and that causes her and Adam to make a decision that was not honoring to God. I think the same thing is true for us. So I'm going to identify a lie that has to do with this fruit of the Spirit, and then we're going to talk about that and see if that's actually true, and then talk about a truth that we believe will help us live out and produce that fruit in our lives. So here's the lie for today, okay? Love must be earned to be returned. Let's talk about that for a minute. Many of us, and, and it feels kind of logical, right, that we would say, well, if someone's not going to love me, I'm not going to love them. If someone doesn't treat me a certain way, then I'm not going to treat them a certain way. If they don't fulfill what I want from the relationship, I'm not going to fulfill what they want. 
And we start to play this game a little bit of if I'm really going to put myself out there, you're going to have to earn my love. You're going to have to do your part in order to receive love from me. And logically, this makes sense. Logically, we would say, yeah, that, that's the way it works. It's, it, you know, we give what we, what we get back, and when we sow into it, we're going to reap what we sow. And so that's what we want to do. We want that relationship to go back and forth and to be even. But the question is, is this actually what Scripture or is it simply what we would desire and what we would want to be true? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to John chapter 13. I know I bounced around to some verses already, but we're going to go to John chapter 13 for our main text today. You can follow along on the screen. Uh, you can open your Bible if you want. If you want to follow along on our website, you can use a little QR code on the back of the Next Steps card uh, and find all the verses and all the notes and all kinds of fun stuff on our website and follow along there. But here we are, John 13, starting in verses 1 and 2. It says, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now this is important, so let's pause and just kind of get the lay of the land while John's telling us. This is right before the Last Supper, okay? So Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross the next day. And John says, I don't think he knew it at the time when he was living this out, but I think looking back as he wrote this book, he said, now I know that at that moment when we had already come in to have dinner together, Judas had already decided what he was going to do. So that, that's an important like, kind of nugget of information just to keep in the back of our minds as we process what this means. In verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything that he had come, that everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. Verses 4 through 5. says, So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now let's pause for a minute, okay? Because this is a one of the things that we hold kind of close in our fellowship of church. If you're new to us, we belong to the Karis Fellowship, and one of the things that we believe that's a little bit different maybe than some other groups of Christians is just we would say that when Jesus does this, and he tells his disciples, as we'll see in a little bit, that they are to do that too, that it's actually a command that we should fulfill this, like we should actually engage in this act a little bit. Now, as I talk about that, some of you, like your skin is already starting to crawl, right? Because we're talking about feet, and people don't like feet. People have to think about it. Like, it's just not something that we enjoy being around usually. Some people say to the people they love the most and know the best, like, don't touch my feet and don't put your feet near me. It's weird, right? It's not something that we engage in a lot. It's something that we will do, you'll find us do here on Good Friday. We will spend time saying we have some space. If you'd like to, we'll force you, we'll make you do anything, but you are free to go and wash your feet. And not, not everybody does it. And that's okay. It's not a big deal. But here's what we know. This is weird. It's different. It's not something we do all the time. And yet, this is what Jesus did. Now, here's the difference between the two situations. If I said to you, everybody take off your shoes and pair up, we're going to wash them. Some of you would just walk right out that door, right? They'd be like, this is not for me. But here's what I also know. Your feet probably aren't that dirty. Like, you probably showered at some point in the last 20 grounds. You've got clean socks. You've got clean shoes. Like, not that dirty. But think about what Jesus is. Like, this job was for the lowest servant on the totem pole. Because people were gross worse back then. 
They had to walk around in sandals, they walked around in dirt all the time. They had animals roaming around, so guess what they do? I follow a buggy for a long time. You know what the animals do on the road, right? So not to be gross, but you never know. So people would come into homes and their feet would be gross from walking around on the road in the dust and whatever else. And so then somebody had to come wash them. And usually it was the servant who was below everybody else. That was their job. That's what they had to do. And it was actually an insult if someone didn't come wash them. Like if they didn't have a servant that would do it and the host of the, of the party or the gathering or whatever didn't do it, it was actually an insult. And after these verses, we're not going to read it, but Peter, when he realizes what Jesus is doing, he actually stops and says, no. He says, there's no way. There's no way you and Jesus are washing my feet. It's not happening. And Jesus looks at him and makes him, you don't even know what you need. You need me to do this for you. And just wait for tomorrow, because what's coming tomorrow is going to be even more crazy. And verses 12 through 13, it says, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that is what I am. Verses 14 and 15. And so I, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. You know, I've seen this done. We've done it at church. I've done it at old churches and, and things like that, and, and I've engaged it. But the one time that was the most meaningful and impactful for me was foot washing was in college. I've told this story maybe once or twice before, but there was a day in college, I was a student ministry major, and so the student ministry, we had class that we were doing, and it was the head of the department that was teaching the class. And one day, we came into class, and the, the classroom was set up differently. The classroom was set up in a, in a circle, and there was a bucket of water. And we all kind of came in, and we thought, why? Why is it this way? Why are we in a circle? Why is the bucket of water? But at the same time, we were student ministry majors, so out-of-the-box kind of things were kind of normal for us. We're like, all right, well, what kind of fun game will we learn today? And so the head of the department comes in, and he says, today I'm going to wash your feet. And he came around to every person and just said, can I wash your feet? And some people said no, but many of us said yes. And so he went around and washed all of our feet, just like Jesus did. And then he read these verses to us. And he said, as pastors, as leaders, as student ministry leaders, whatever you're going to be, this is the example we have to follow. Do what I've done for you. Now here's the thing. I don't remember any other class with that guy. I remember liking his classes, but not a single class period. I don't remember another single class period. I remember that one. And I remember the next year, so I think I was a sophomore that happened, so my junior year of college, we were in the same hallway, and that day we, we were walking down the hallway, me and some friends were going to another class, and we looked into that same classroom, and the chairs were in a circle, and there was a bucket. And we all kind of looked at each other and went, it's for watching that. Lucky them. There was part of us that wanted to just go hop in that class to like do that again because it was awesome. But we didn't go. But we remember that. And we'll, and I guarantee if I called a buddy of mine in that class, I'd say, What was the most impactful day? And they almost would not be able to say that. And so Jesus, before he goes to the cross, before he goes and dies, he, he does this act that everyone would have looked at him and said, You're crazy. Anybody else in the room should do this besides you, Jesus. And Jesus just says, no, 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 this is the way it has to be. And then if we skip down about 20 verses, but it's the same chapter in John 13, verses 34 and 35. It says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, 
you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. One of the things about Jesus that can be it's really effective, but it's also very frustrating at times, is when Jesus gives a commandment, he sets it up and he acts and he does these things, there is no way around like getting around doing what he said. Like they didn't just sit down and have dinner and then all of a sudden he just says, hey, I love you guys, you guys should love each other the same. No, he rocked their world and washed their feet and then said, the thing that none of you wanted to do when we came in here for anybody else that I was willing to do, that you guys told me not to do, that's what we're supposed to do. And he goes, here's what it is, right? Just as I have loved you, there's no way around it. You should love each other. And so how do we actually do this? How do we have this fruit of the Spirit, this love, flow out of our lives? And I have two things I want to say we'll talk about in a little bit, and then we'll kind of land this one. First of all, I would say this, that you can't measure love on a scoreboard. Okay? Scoreboards are good for a lot of stuff. You go to a game. You want to know what the score is, you want to know how much time's left, you want to know what the count is, you want to know how many timeouts left. Scoreboards are great for a lot of things. But when we start to track love or relationships or compare to one another, and we start keeping score, things are going to go south pretty quick. And even in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage says this, it keeps, in verse 5, it keeps, love keeps no record of being wrong. So it's easy if we want to believe the lie and say love must be earned to be returned, we can say, I'm going to keep score. I'm going to make sure that what I do is different than what you do, or I keep up and you keep up. I'm going to make sure you know that. But it doesn't work that way. But here's what happens when you keep score when there's a scoreboard. Keeping a score creates a winner and a loser. And ultimately, I think when we look at other people and we say, you are not good at loving, or I am better at loving you than you are at loving me, or I'm better at doing we're creating a loser. We're looking at the other person and saying, why are you losing in this relationship one day? Married people, think about what happened if you woke up one morning and said that to your spouse. How would that day go for you? Not great, right? Because we know that this is true, and yet sometimes we get into this mindset where we say, I want to keep score, I want to go back to court, and I want to figure it out. And then we can also get into the space of maybe we're watching the clock go down. And yet in Psalm 107, 1, it says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. So here's what I also believe to be true. That love will always go bad if it has an expiration date. <laughs> so let me give you two examples of these two things, okay? So it's bad when we keep score, keeping score bad, and, and bad when it has an expiration date. I was at a funeral and a wedding in the last couple of weeks. Life goes round, right? And so at the funeral, I remember a guy that had passed away, I believe it was Mike. And I remember uh, one of the things I know about Mike is he was always willing to do favors for other people. And one of the pastors that came up and talked about him, and had known him for a long time, he said, I always tried to outdo Mike with my favors, but every time I did him a favor, he did that. He's like, I couldn't keep up. I always had, in his mind, not that Mike was telling him, not that, but this pastor felt like every time, he's like, he couldn't keep up with the good things Mike would do for him, no matter how much he did for him, he just keep up. And Mike would never say a word about it, but he would just keep doing stuff and doing stuff and doing stuff. So Mike didn't keep score. He just said, I'm just going to love you, and I'm going to care for you, I'm just going to chase that. That's all we're going to do. Then yesterday, as I was thinking about the sermon and processing, I, or not yesterday, Friday, I sat at a wedding, and I thought, you know, none of us that have been married get to our wedding day, and we start to think about, okay, when is this over? Right, when's the day that I'm going to be able to take this all back and won't have to worry about it anymore? 
No, the way we think about it is you erase the finish line. Like there, there is no end to our relationship. I'm going to want to do this forever. But here's the thing. Sometimes we get caught in relationships and thinking, if this happens, I'm out. You might sit back and argue, like, yeah, but there's biblical sand for that. Like, there's reasons I can leave. There's reasons I can go. There's reasons. Like, if this happens, I'm out. But here's what I'm saying. If our attitude is, I'm going to set a time, set a date, set a finish line when I no longer have to love you, it's not love in the first place. We would never want to focus on that. We would never want the expiration date or the finish line to be the focus. We would want to just say that my love is going to continue. Without fail. When you get married and you look at each other, you say, I'm going to run this race until one of us is no longer here. Keep running. It's not a finish line, it's finishing well. So we know that when we keep score in a relationship, when we set an expiration date for something, that's always kind of going to be on the rocks. It's not going to work out. It's It's going to find that expiration date whether we think we're going to or not. The second thing I want to say about love is that the most awe-inspiring love is given when we don't deserve it. Like in movies or in relationships, like when somebody shows up and gives you something, or or you watch a story and somebody shows up and does something for someone that they didn't deserve or that they didn't want or that they didn't even know they needed, we look at that and like our hearts go, or like we we get awe-inspired and we get excited about that, and that's amazing. And yet there are times when we go, you don't deserve it, I won't do it. I won't love you that way. I won't chase that down for you. And yet Jesus in Luke 6, a little earlier than what we were talking about before, verse 27 says this. But you are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Listen, I think it's interesting that Jesus starts this comment with, but to you who are willing to listen. You know what he's listening? I know some of you aren't going to listen. I know that there's going to be those of you who hear this or read this later, like we're thinking about today. And we're just going to go, Jesus, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I logically love someone who's my enemy? Why would I do good to those who hate me? But he doubles down on it a few verses later in verse 35. He says it again, love your enemies. He knows you want to do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward in heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Listen, now here's the, like, here's the tension, okay? Because we've all been in relationships with people, whether it's friendship or marriage or whatever, sibling relationship, whatever it might be, where that person keeps running away and we keep trying to love them and they just keep on going. And they make it real clear that they want nothing to do with us. And so then we look at verses like this and we say, what does it mean to do good to someone who is my enemy or who hates me? And we think about those moments and we go, this person wants nothing to do with us, or they keep ruining the relationship, or they keep taking advantage of me. If I keep chasing them, I'm enabling them. Like, I have to have those healthy boundaries of what does that mean. And here's how I want us to understand this, and we're not going to go there, but I want to think of the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, if you don't know the story, son says to his father, I want my inheritance now while you're still alive. So he basically looks at his dad and says, you'd be better off. It'd be better for me if you were dead and I could just have your money and you gave me your Because dad was rich. So dad says, all right, gives him the money, son goes off, lives a sinful life, wastes all the money. Here's what, here's what the dad didn't do. He didn't chase him. 
he let him make the decision. He let him go make whatever decision he was going to make. He let, let him make the mistakes he was going to make. He let him go live the life he wanted to live. But the moment he saw his son back on the horizon, what did he do? He ran to him. So in order to love people, sometimes we don't have to chase them. The question is, what do we do when they turn around and they say they're sorry? Do we keep track of, yeah, but you did all this stuff, I don't have to do it. Or, do we look at them and say, I love you, let's figure this out. Now there might be pain there, there might be trauma that has to be worked through, there might be conflict that has to happen, whatever has to happen. But are we willing, if someone turns around and says, I, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Are we going to be there when they turn around? Or are we going to wash our hands of them? You know, as we go back and think about our, our, our verses in John 13. Remember, remember what John told us. That when they come to dinner, Judas had already decided what he was going to do. And what did Jesus continue to do? <coughs> Washed everybody's feet. So here's what's true. It would have been easy for Jesus not to have washed Judas's feet. He could have said to Judas, I know what you're going to do. Just go do it. I'll see you in the garden in two hours. Let me spend time here with the guys who actually want to be here and who are actually committed to me. Just get out of here. He doesn't do that. He goes to the whole room and the last act, the last interaction he has with Judas before Judas betrays him is to wash his stinky, smelly, backstabbing feet. Even though Jesus knew what was going to happen. So while it would have been easy for Jesus not to have washed Judas's feet, instead this happens. Judas becomes the standard by which the disciples understand Jesus' love for them. I don't know this, but but like I know, I'll give you my story, right, where my professor washed our feet. This was a moment that the disciples had to talk about for a long time. And at some point, I think one of them realized, wait a minute. He washed Judas's feet, too. And later in life, when they would get into situations where maybe they felt like they failed or felt like they did something wrong or felt like they had not lived up to Jesus' standard, and they thought back to that moment, and they thought back to how Jesus loved Judas to the very last second, they could look back at their own lives and say, but he still loves me. Like, if he could wash Judas's feet, he still loves me. And so Judas became a standard by which they understood Jesus' love for them. So here's what I want to do. Here, here was the lie, okay? Let me remind you. Here's the lie we said earlier. Love must be earned to be returned. But here's the truth I think we can live out of that will change the way we love other people. You are loved without expectation or expiration. Now there's two groups of people that might hear this and go, hang on, Pastor Corey, i got some questions. Let's pause for a minute. Okay, so let's pause. Let's talk about it. There could be one group of people that are Jesus followers, and they hear this, and they go, yeah, but when we are loved by Jesus, we have to decide to live a certain way. When we fully understand who Jesus is, we have to make the decision that we're going to follow him. Maybe we get baptized, and we decide that we're going to respond in kind to Jesus' love. And I would say, yes, that's absolutely true. When we understand the love of Jesus, we have to and should respond accordingly when that sinks into our heart. And we're going to get there in a minute for how that works. But here's the thing. I know that tomorrow, if I screw up, Jesus is still going to love me. 
It's not, this is where we get stuck. It's not where God says, I love you as long as you follow all the rules. It's not, I love you until you decide you don't want to follow me anymore. Or I love you until, like in all of those moments, Jesus is still standing there saying, I love you no matter what. Like I died while you were still learning to sin. I still love you. There's not expectation. God just loves us anyway. So here's the second group of people. The second group of people might not be followers of Jesus, or it could be someone who follows Jesus and just kind of challenging this conversation in a really healthy way. But I say there's no expiration, and we think maybe, yeah, but if you die and go to hell, that's the expiration. Like if I get to the end of life and, and I decide I don't want to follow Jesus, and God sends me to hell and separate separation from him for eternity, that's an expiration date on his love. I would say that's the wrong way to understand that. I would say that we all know whether we're followers of Jesus or not, there's an expiration date on our life. And we all know that. We all know we're going to die. And God says, there's an expiration date coming for your life. Here's all of the love I can offer you. Choose to follow me at any point, any moment, literally the last breath. Guy on the cross says, I want to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, you're in. Right? At any moment before that expiration date of your life comes, you are able to follow Jesus. But here's the other side of it. If we decide for that entire time that we want to move away from God and not chase Him and not accept His love and not build a relationship with Him, He's going to give us what we've decided to have, which is separation. That's what happens. He just says, this is your choice. I'm going to allow you to keep loving. Now that's a scary place if we decide to keep loving. But at the same time, His love never changes. And I would also say that as, as harsh as this might sound, like, can a father love his kids while allowing his kids to have the consequences of their actions? Yeah. Because dad's mom, that's one of the hardest things. When you watch your kid make a bad decision, it's like, I just gotta let you understand what this means. And so God doesn't say, my love runs out. He says, this is your choice. What are you going to choose to do? So let's go back to that first group that says, what about the expectation? Well, here's just a reminder, right? Here's what he said in John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. So how do we respond when we realize we are loved without expiration and expectation? The answer is that we would love without expectation and expiration. But here's the question that we have to answer in our own hearts and minds. What is the standard for love? What is our standard for love? What is the point where someone says, I disagree with you, or I think this, or I'm going to choose to do that, and we say, based on that, I don't love you anymore. What is it? What's the thing someone can do that changes in your mind and says, I'm not going to love you anymore. I'm not going to do this the way Jesus wants it to. I think we all, if we believe that lie, love must be earned to be returned. We've all got that line somewhere with people around us. So the question is, would Jesus draw that line? Or would he continue to love no matter what? And this is true too. Those who are loved know how to love well. So when we understand what Jesus' love means to us, we love well. And he even says, the way that people will know your mind is by the way you love other people. We've got to ask that question is, 
true of us or not? And are the truths that I'm believing causing you to live out in love that people would look and say, you can't be loving on your own standard. You have to be loving with some other motivation, and that motivation is Jesus. And so here's the truth that I want us to hold on to. I'm going to talk about how I want us to kind of flesh this out this year. That we would say, I will love without expectation or aspiration. Here's, here's how I want this to work out for us, okay? Um, and I'm going to challenge us to do this as a church family. I'm going to give you a phrase every week. And Pastor Andrew's going to give us phrases when he's on. We're going to give you these truths that we believe. If you just brought, there's nothing magic about it. It's just like when we think about it, when we remind ourselves of these things, right? You hear something over and over again, you believe it to be true. So when we challenge ourselves and we say, I'm going to believe the truth, I'm going to think God's truth, I'm going to dwell on God's truth, those of us in church might say, hide his word in our heart. Right? Well, when we do that, we have to remind ourselves of what that means. And so I would challenge you, first of all, to every morning or every day you're driving the car or every night at dinner or every night before you go to bed, like say to yourself, I am loved without expectation or expiration. Jesus loves me without expectation or expiration. Here's how that works out functionally. Someone looks at you at work and says, why are you so bad at this? Right? How could you miss that deadline? How could you fail at this? How could you do that? How could you let this happen? Right? And you just pause for a minute and not out loud. But when they're coming at you, you just think, I am loved without expectation or expiration by Jesus. You can like feel in that moment how it doesn't excuse if you made a mistake, but it's just like a blanket that comes over you for a moment. You go, ah, okay, like let's let's do this. Let's be better. Let's move forward. Ah, Jesus loves me no matter what. He's in my corner. Let's just go. So every day reminds that I am loved without expectation. Jesus loves me without expectation or expiration. And then here's what my second challenge is. So your Saturday, somewhere in your house, write down all these truths we give you. So over the course of however many weeks it goes, write them down. Find a whiteboard or whatever. Have a toddler take a crayon on your wall or something like that, right? That'd be a lot of fun. Write them. You paint over it later. It's cool. Write them down. And as we go through the summer, Repeat those things to you. See what happens when we start to say, I'm going to remind myself of God's truth every day and live out of that. Because when you start your day or you process it, you start to, I love without expectation or expiration. And you look at someone and you don't love them, or you love them with expectations, you're going to go, darn it. Why am I doing that? That's not what I'm called to do. And Jesus can wash Judas' feet. I bet. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be asked to wash someone's feet who has turned you over to be killed as an innocent person. So we're not going to have to love like that. How much more are we willing to love when someone makes us upset? When they say they're I'm not saying excuse it. I'm just saying we understand in perspective who we are, how we are loved. How Jesus doesn't hold those things over our head. And how we get to love other people like that. And when we do, we reflect Jesus to those people. So write this down somewhere. Or, or just say it to yourself on a daily, the next seven days. Just say it at some point during the day. Find a spot in the house where you can write out these truths. And by the end of the summer, you're going to have a list of truths from Scripture that God says about you. What happens? Just see what happens when we live 
out of that truth that we store in our hearts. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, like I said earlier, I don't think it's a mistake to call for love first on this list. Because it's hard. It's hard to love people when they don't love you well. And that idea of love must be earned to be returned is a very easy trap to fall into when we just don't want to put forth the effort for people that don't do it for us. And yet, when we look at John 13, you don't give us much wiggle room on whether or not we need to love people who are even our enemy, who have betrayed us, or have nothing to do with us. So Jesus, I ask that you would help this truth to, to sink into who we are, that we would remember that you love us without expectation or expectation. And we wouldn't just take that and kind of feel it as this, I don't know, little greeting card saying, but that we would recognize that that's true. And we would stick that down deep in our hearts and it would influence the way that we love other people that we would be the kind of people that love without expectation or expiration. And I know that there are difficulties as we talk through this in a room this size where uh, we think about that person. And we go, I don't, I don't want to enable them. I don't want to put myself in a bad spot. Like I, need to, I pray that you would just make it really, really clear what it means for us to love them well. Without giving up boundaries without enabling people, but just to love them like you. I pray that will help you very, very clearly. Thank you again that we can walk out of this place knowing we are loved. And I pray that we would reflect that to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.